Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here and share the Word of God with you here at this time. The passage today that we'll be going over is from 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 2 to 17. That's 1 Samuel chapter 7, 2 to 17. And if you have a pew Bible, please turn to page 215. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 2 to 17. When you have found it, please rise from your seats in reverence for God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. My friends, this is the unfailing, inerrant, infallible word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I have three points this morning for you, and that is humble yourselves, experience, and remember. Humble yourselves, experience, and remember. It's an acronym for her, but humble yourselves, experience, and remember. And it's all in light of 
before, during, and after God's mercies. So before, humble yourselves. During, experience, and after, remember all about God's new mercies. So humble yourselves is from verses 2 to 6. Even though the book is named after him, Samuel was not mentioned for the last three chapters. But now he has appeared again, and he is preaching to Israel. And the picture of his re-entrance coincides with God's new mercies, mercies that Israel desperately needs. From the last two weeks, we saw how Israel was severely judged. So were the Philistines, by the way. But it is Israel who is called to repentance by the mercy of God. So our scene this morning opens with the house of Israel lamenting after the Lord. You see, the ark was returned, but the people of God still faced the severity of God. For 20 years this went on while the ark was in Kiriath-Jerim. But during that time, there was Samuel. And what did he do during that time? Samuel was preaching. He was calling on all the people of Israel to repent. The reason why we saw the Israelites lamenting, weeping, and sobbing over their predicament, and then Samuel preaching repentance, is because they are not the same. Lamenting and repentance is not the same. Maybe when you were young and you did something wrong, you were disciplined, and rightly so, and you cried, and you wept for your father to relent from disciplining you. And then what happened afterwards? A lot of times you would go right back to it. Or was that just me? Maybe it was just me. My parents would say, don't play with fire. And I would say, okay. And I would go right back to building or trying to build a campfire in the corner of my bedroom. My sister, who was the wiser one, would be like, hey, didn't you just hear what our parents said? And it's like, you be quiet and just stay there. But even the tears and cries of anguish We are not to mistake it with actual signs of repentance is the point. Because we are people that can be moved to tears without ever being changed. Samuel's preaching and call to repentance is to make sure that the people recognize that while tears and sorrow are good, especially when it's over sin, They are good and well. True repentance goes beyond emotional responses. So yes, the emotional response is there. It always is. But repentance is that and more. This is what he said. This is what he preached. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Genuine repentance. 
a true humbling of yourself before God is always actionable. You are sorrowful for your sins and you turn away from them. You are sorry for sleeping with your girlfriend and you stop sleeping with her. If it stopped with just tears and weeping, it would not be repentance. There are tears and there and then they were also to put away the foreign gods and Ashtaroth from among them. For true repentance to happen, a humbling of yourself happens before that, where you meet the Lord's demand for exclusive allegiance to Him and Him alone. And then you would do whatever it takes to obey it. It's the same command God gave in Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. It's the same Jesus that gave us when he was here on this earth in Matthew 10, 37 to 38, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That is an incredible demand. It's the demand that the Christian lose their life into the mercies of God. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Repentance is not a one-time event. The Christian life is an ongoing, continual life of repentance. The great reformer Martin Luther would write in his 95 thesis, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent in Matthew 4.17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It's not only an incredible demand, it is a difficult demand to put away the foreign gods along with the Ashtaroth. You know, when I was a kid and you grow up in Sunday school and you read time and time again in the Old Testament of how the Israelites would continue to turn back to these false gods, these false idols, you would think like, come on, don't they get the picture? How long is it going to take? How hard is it to not worship an idol? But this is a difficult demand. To put away the foreign gods along with the Ashtaroth was to put away and renounce the male and female deities that dominated the prevailing culture on sex and fertility. You see, the Canaanite religion had shrines to Baal and Asherah, which also served as brothels. It was basically, you could have sex with whomever you want. And not only that, you will be blessed. You'll be happy if you have sex with whoever you want. With that kind of message, 
Why wouldn't you want to follow Baal or Asherah? Sex and success together? I mean, where do I sign? You see, Baal was the god of fertility and the storm. It appealed to men, strength and sex. He was believed to be the son of Dagon, which was the idol that we went over in the previous week. Dagon was the god of grain. And Ashtaroth, as mentioned here, whose mother was Asherah, was the goddess of love and fertility who appealed to women, love, and sex. So to be associated with Baal, Asherah, and Ashtaroth was to associate yourself with the sexual rituals at these Canaanite shrines. And these were especially abominable in the Lord's eyes. The Bible continually warns and warned not to be associated with Baal. And to be associated with Baal was to be associated with shame. I'll just give you two verses on that. Jeremiah eleven thirteen says, For your gods have become as many as your cities, O Judah, and as many as the streets of Jerusalem are the altars you have set up to shame, altars to make offerings to Baal. And also Hosea 9.10. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. This is not just about idols. People think this is just like some wooden thing. This is about sex and having sex with whomever you want, anytime you want. And not only that, the promise is you'll be happy if you do that. But God hates that. There's no doubt, there's no doubt that we as a nation are undergoing judgment right now. And perhaps you don't feel the sting of $6 a gallon of gas, but I know people living in the inner city who is incredibly depressed right now because their livelihoods have been dramatically impacted by what looks to be a real economic depression by the end of this year. The struggle that he shared was whether he should get a 22 or not. You may not understand what I just said, you may not understand the significance of this, but in Chicago, if you get a 22, that's a 22 caliber gun, it's either to harm yourself or to harm others. This isn't something that buying a Tesla will fix or saying on TV that as long as your conscience is clear, you don't mind gas going up to $15 a gallon. Because people are wondering, why does it just seem to be getting worse? When we keep on following Baal and Asherah, there should be no surprise at the coming judgment. The modern person is currently deceived into thinking that they don't follow any God. Hey, I don't follow Baal. I don't follow Asherah. I am not religious. Even in our schools, teachers are deceived into thinking that they can't teach religion, but they ought to teach this new sexual ideology. 
However, no matter how much you want to deny it, you are religious. Everyone is religious, especially those that are espousing this LGBTQ ideology. And now it's propaganda over gaslighting, over more propaganda with a sprinkle of extra gaslighting. The New York Times published an article on March 4 saying this, the gender-affirming healthcare saves lives is clear. A 2018 literature review by Cornell University concluded that 93% of studies found that transition improved transgender people's health outcomes, while the remaining 7% found mixed or null results. Not a single study in the review concluded negative impact, unquote. Is that right? This is just a week ago. Cornell University concluded 93% of studies found that transitioning makes you happier. The author Alex Marzano Lesnovich was citing a review called What We Know Project. And the What We Know Project was by another LGBT activist named Nathaniel Frank. But when you take a closer look at these studies that they have been purporting, they are self-selected online studies with cash prizes. They are studies missing more than half their subjects. I saw one sample that was to be of 546 people and they ended up with just 201 respondents out of the 546 they needed for that study. It's just a third of what they were supposed to sample. 52 of the studies that they sampled had under 100 people with the biggest ones that held maybe 300 or slightly more, which is still minuscule because how big is a sample size of 300? Might as well take a sample size here and call it a study. With those that are 300, they were like online studies or online surveys that entered you into a lottery after so that you could win these prizes. And so it was rickety study after rickety study that they put together. And then you would wonder, why would the New York Times do such a thing? There are reports at the end of last year that the New York Times declined to run an article that was submitted by a group of gender transition experts warning that many clinics have recklessly provided hormone blockers to minors. They declined to post that one though, or publish that article. Because if you deem it healthcare, women's healthcare, transgender healthcare, then what was morally, what was once morally reprehensible is now an irrefutable good, right? This is the new religion that has taken our country by storm. Those letters of the alphabet are your gods, and it is the ideology you must submit to or you will be placed under submission. The depiction is that people are being gaslit into thinking it is not a religion. You should teach it in school because it is not a religion. Let me give you the Merriam-Webster Dictionary of Religion. I don't like definitions that have the word in it. So if it's like, what's the, de what's the meaning of red? Well, red is a reddish color. It's like, what does that even mean? So 
If I took out all the definitions that Merriam-Webster used religion to define religion, we're left with one. And you can look it up yourselves. And that one is a cause, principle, or system of beliefs held to with ardor and faith. That's exactly what this is. This is a cause, principle, and system of beliefs held to with a feverish loyalty. Every single of that alphabet in the LGBTQIIA2S plus is rebellion against God and his divine order for sex, marriage, and the flourishing of man that he has designed. And you have to wonder why. Why are we such sticklers on this? Why is it that God sets forth in the Bible what God sets forth for sex and marriage is so narrow? Why does it seem like there are so many restrictions? Shouldn't love be a precursor to sex? And the answer is no. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. Love isn't even the prerequisite for marriage. It's in a marriage covenant that love is fully expressed. That's what the Bible teaches. Marriage was designed to be this precious and exquisite gem forged under 725,000 pounds per square inch of pressure, a beauty to be witnessed by the world, giving glory to God who ordained it. And while this gem could have various uses from industrial drilling to being put at the end of a record player needle to play beautiful music, you can't put a piece of charcoal on a record player needle and expect the same quality. You can complain, perhaps, that it's all the same carbon atom, but try proposing to your girlfriend with a piece of coal on top of a ring and say it's the same thing. Instead of submitting to the nature and order of God, idol worship is rebellion against it. You can say all you want that this is not religious so you can get it in schools and that you could <clears throat> indoctrinate children, but that is a lie. It's a set of beliefs held to with great fervor and rebellion against God is to go against God, to crash into him thinking that he would be moved instead of you not being broken into pieces. Is there a way out though? If you are under this spell, if you have already committed to this religion, you are serving the Baal and Ashtaroths. Is there a way out? Is there any way from staving off the wrath of God and the judgment of God? And the resounding answer is yes. And it's in Samuel's sermon, repent and put away the foreign gods. James 4, verse 9 to 10, 10 excuse me, says, be wretched and mourn and weep. That's the first part. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your, glory to gloom, your joy to gloom. Here's the second part. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. 
the humble know this. Our only hope rests in the divine mercy of God. Point number two is experience. And those are from verses 7 to 10. The Philistines apparently heard about the, all the Israelites gathering at Mizpah. I find this to be a constant in life as well. When you are repentant, when God is doing something in your life, the enemy, like a bear coming out of hibernation to meet being cooked over fire, comes out. Mizpah went, meant watchtower. Uh, as long, I've, you all know that I love um, word etymology. Some of you were wondering what I would name my child. And so I won't tell you. It will be something Hebrew with a guttural sound. Like Hadassah, no. I told my wife what Hadassah was, and that means righteousness. And she's like, oh. but she vetoes most of them. Or Mordechai if it was a guy, right? Great names. But she does have veto power. Um, thankfully for the kid, I suppose. But Mizpah meant watchtower. And so you could imagine the Israelites could see the Philistines coming to their city. And no one can help perhaps to compare and then to put side by side the events of chapter 4 and chapter 7 right now. In both these chapters, the Philistines come out to fight against the Israelites. And while in chapter 4, they try to manipulate God by bringing the ark, resulting in a devastating loss, in chapter 7, they look almost pathetic in their helplessness. They can only plead with Samuel in their emergency. Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. But this is the picture we are purposely being shown. There is no magic here, no powerful incantations, no mustering up of willpower to fight against the Philistines. They can only hang on by the thread that is God's mercy. But this holding on is faith. They ask their leader, Samuel, and this leader was a blessing from the Lord he was wise, and he told the truth about repentance. He told them what sin was and did not hold back, did not cover it up, did not sugarcoat it. And when the Israelites were in danger, he didn't put them into further danger with stupidity. He knew where to turn and how to do it. It's so important to have wise leaders. Pray that we have good leaders full of wisdom and righteousness, otherwise all the people will suffer. The Israelites were all gathered at Mizpah. They didn't have weapons, they weren't ready for war, but they realized something much more important. When they were in a helpless state, when they were totally out of resource, they knew that they had only one thing left, Prayer was their only recourse. This is also something churches today ought to recognize. 
Whenever we see a slight dip in attendance or finances, there is an uptick in unsatisfaction or there is conflict or disunity, the temptation is that we ought to sit down and develop new strategies, come up with new gimmicks, more music, more lights, more smoke machines, all the while being blind to her true state. The church must recognize that her own cleverness will not get her out of a spiritual depression or win spiritual battles. And it doesn't matter how creative or clever the program is. The Israelites were put in this particular predicament where they were stripped of all their props and gimmicks to show that they need the hand of God to support them. And sometimes it's necessary to have all the secondary helps and supports taken away from us so that we could recognize how truly defenseless we are without God's help. That we must lean on His mercy alone. And it's hard to pray that kind of desperate prayer if you still think you have a secondary means of support. However, What we must recognize is that we are utterly helpless and completely dead in our sins. We are like the dog that returns to its vomit as we keep on repeating the same sins that entangle us more and more. But when the Israelites were boxed in, they were able to recognize the true state in which they were in. And the only rational activity is to plead for mercy. And it was while Samuel was lifting up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack. The charge must have been great. The shouts loud and mighty. The confidence staggering. And you could easily imagine the scene the Israelites were witnessing on top of Mizpah. Samuel takes this tiny nursing lamb and is preparing to burn it whole as an offering to God. And on the other side is a great amassed army charging, growing larger and louder by the minute. One side a tiny lamb, the other side a large army. Tiny lamb, massive army. And at the very last moment, Samuel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord thunders into battle. In 2 Samuel 22, verse 14 and 15, it says, The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice, and he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning, and routed them. It was a sea of arrows that covered the sky. That would come crashing down on the armies of the Philistines. Only these arrows were lightning. And just like that, in an instant, they were thrown into confusion and defeated. In an instant, all the problems that looked like they were inescapable, insurmountable, world-ending, gone. And this is the confidence that we can have because the office of Samuel is showing us the picture of Christ as our high priest who intercedes for us. And this high priest, his prayers are always effectual. In Romans 8.34 it says, Who is it 
to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The last point is remember. From verses 11 to 14, Israel routs the Philistines and Samuel sets up a stone as a monument calling it Ebenezer. Till now the Lord has helped us. What he means is much more than just one point of help though. It is referencing all that has happened because of God's mercy. The series and chains of events from even their defeat so that they could recognize who God is to the reminder of his law, to the call to repentance, to the showing of their depraved and helpless state, to the experiencing of God's power and salvation. All that was part of God's mercy. Not only that, but the Israelites would have remembered even further back to the rescue from Egypt, to the provision in the desert, maybe even further back to Abraham and the calling of God's people. And while the remembrance is there to remind God's people that all throughout their history, God has been there for his people, it's also there to give confidence and hope that God will continue to be there for those that rely on him, that those who call in his name shall not be forsaken, and that in his great mercy, he is mighty to save. We especially remember this through our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his life, death, and resurrection has secured our place with him for all eternity and where we gather in celebration and great anticipation of his second coming every Sunday, every resurrection day, every Lord's day. But not only looking to the ultimate day of his second coming, we too ought to remember God's faithfulness and mercy over this church and our lives. You know, we started as a ragtag group of 12 people, some fishermen, a tax collector, a no, that's another group. But we too at CGS have our history, our move from progressive to reformed, studying the word of God and loving the word of God, from having acquaintances to profoundly loving and standing alongside one another. We've had our share of difficulties, especially when we moved to the reformed faith. And by the way, we are still reforming. But God has clearly shown us such incredible mercy and favor. It's truly been an honor and joy journeying with you all. And the remembrance are there for us to remind us of the times we were down and the cards were stacked against us. Maybe we will face times where we are tempted to despair, pressed down, tired, and sapped of strength, angry and upset at our circumstances. Maybe you will experience times where you feel that God's presence is withdrawn. That's when you look at the stone that was set up at Ebenezer. That's when you read it in God's word. This is what we commemorate at the Lord's table every month. This is what we celebrate every week in the reading, singing, and praying of the gospel. 
a troubled people perhaps, but only for a time, for his mercies are new every morning. How do I know this for sure? It says in Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up all for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There's a great verse in a famous hymn, and it goes like this. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. The summary in this chapter is from verses 15 to 17. In these last verses of this chapter, it draws a line wrapping up Samuel's life and career. It's a summary of Samuel's life, and the word judged occurs three times according to Samuel regarding Samuel, connoting the idea of him administering justice and wise rule. The reason why his life is summarized here and shown as judge is to show us what type he is, how worship was central in all the places he went to, and what kind of character we should expect in a leader of God's people. That's how this chapter ends. We'll continue to study this book chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and I pray that we could truly see the beauty of God's mercies that are new every morning. Let's pray.